We're working our way through Hebrews chapter 12 right now. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that as followers of Jesus, we're running a race, that it's a long race, that it's at times a difficult race. And because it's a difficult race, we're instructed to set aside every encumbrance that could slow us down and every sin that might trip us up. And then we're told to run. And undoubtedly, this race will be challenging at times. It'll be grueling. But nevertheless, we're encouraged and urged to press on. Hebrews was written to people who were getting discouraged at times in their faith. Life was not easy or as happy as they thought it would be. It was often difficult. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the author has already used two metaphors to describe God's role in these difficult times. J.D. Greer summarizes these two this way. He says, first of all, the one metaphor was God is a good father, and we talked about how a good father disciplines his children not to avenge his anger, but to mold their character. What's done is done in love. If you're a believer, God's never paying you back for your sin, avenging wrongdoing, because Jesus absorbed the full curse of your sin. Nothing uh, in punishment is left for you. In your pain, God might be trying to bring you back, but he's not paying you back. (laughs) And we talked about that. That's an important distinction. Then last week, we talked about the second metaphor, that God's like a personal trainer or a coach. The way a muscle grows uh, when you exercise is that it's broken down first so that later it can be built up. Exercise actually tears your muscles, but the new muscle develops in those tears and you get stronger. When you work out, you don't feel stronger at the time. You usually feel weaker. But over time, even though you might feel miserable during your workouts, you're actually growing stronger. And it's the same with faith. The muscle of faith will never grow if it's never tested, never broken down. You know, a lot of times this doesn't make sense. What we're going through doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand how it's going to benefit us in the the future. Uh, But a, a wise trainer understands the significance of what you're doing. J.D. Greer said this. He says, I remember hearing that Olympic athlete Michael Phelps' coach one day in practice reached into the water and grabbed the goggles off of Phelps' head and stomped on him and told him to keep going. And what he did, he said, didn't make any sense at the time. But when Phelps had a goggle malfunction in 2008 and couldn't see, he was prepared. He says, I've been through this before. And he knew that the count stroke to the wall He said his coach prepared him for something that he didn't see was coming. And this can be difficult, but if we're Christians, God is using the events in our life to mold us and to shape us and to prepare us for what's coming, and we are still to keep trusting in him. Just because it's not your plan doesn't mean it's not a good plan. (laughs) God sometimes answers our prayers by giving us what we would ask for if we knew as much as he knew. (laughs) And so uh, 
Those are things that we've been talking about up until now. Greer asks this. He says, do you trust that in all things God has a loving purpose for you? Something that he's pursuing for you. And he says, if you do, you can know that in every inconvenience, every broken heart, every disappointment, every tragedy, God is making you into something too wonderful to comprehend fully right now. That takes faith, but that's what we've been talking about. And then last week we, we talked about verses 12 and 13 that says, Therefore, in, you're in this race, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Limbs will get tired in a long race. And so we should make level paths for your feet so the lame will not be disabled, but rather healed. You know, the image here is of a long cross-country race where you could twist an ankle on a rough path. And so that no one falls in a hole or twists an ankle on a rock or sprains an ankle, you take care of both yourself and take care of others who are coming after you. You remove the obstacles. You don't give up. You don't quit. Your knees are tired. You keep pushing. You begin to think, is it worth it to keep running? I've gone this far. Isn't that far enough? But there's still a ways to go. And you're encouraged to keep running to the end. This sort of thinking makes a runner think, you know, maybe I should drop out of the race. And a lot of, no doubt, the people we looked at in our last series in Hebrews chapter 11 that felt that way at times, they felt like maybe it's not worth it. Maybe we should kind of back off. But they look to the Lord and finish their race, and they're an example to us. They're cheering us on through their example. So this morning, then, we're going to look at the next few verses. And they're really just talking about how to run. It's really a passage that's filled with a bunch of instructions. Just a big list of one-sentence or half-sentence instructions. Let me read it to you. First instruction, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Secondly, make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Third, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Fourth, and that no bitter root grows up causing trouble and defiles many. To cause trouble and defile many. Fifth, see to it no one is sexually immoral. And sixth, or see to it that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his, this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. This section's talking about some specific things that it means to be a good runner. It's talking about what a sanctified life looks like. The message of this uh, section is really simple. It says, as we run the race, we need to guard against worldliness. Worldliness is an attitude that makes the things of the world more important than the things of God. And these are all kind of forms of worldliness. In this passage, the author of Hebrews first gives us two positive commands. 
And then he warns us in relationship to the second positive command about four common pitfalls that could knock us out of the race. So first we're going to look at the two positive commands. First, Christians are told to pursue peace and to pursue holiness. The first has to do with our relationship with other people. Peace in our relationships and holiness has to do with our relationship with God. Living a life set apart for him and his purposes. First then, we're to pursue peace with others. He says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. In uh, Romans, Paul says this. He says, if if it's possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And uh, in this statement, he's making it clear that it's not always going to be possible to have peace with everyone. Sometimes other people aren't going to cooperate, so you're not going to be able to have peace with them. But he's saying that if there is a breakdown in our relationships, it should be on our part, not their part. That we should do everything we can to have peace. Unity in our relationships is not something that comes easily. And that's reflected in the word that's used here in the Greek. In the Greek, where it says make every effort, the word is pursue. In the Greek, it's did, did, did oko. Didoko, and it means to work hard at something, to strive for, to seek after it, to pursue it persistently. Actually, it's a word that's used in hunting, uh, and that's a word that we should understand as Montanans because we know something about hunting, and we know that hunting is hard work. In a hunt, you have to be careful, you have to be crafty, you have to be persistent. If you're going to be successful in your hunt, you've got to be all these things. You know, I remember uh, times of crawling on my hands and knees through thick brush for what seemed like hours. It was probably five minutes, but it seemed like hours. (laughs) Just to get close enough to get a shot. And the point is that, that... Peace is not easy to obtain. If you want to have peace with others, you have to hunt for it. You have to work for it, just like you do if you're hunting. What's in mind here is a sustained and determined pursuit. Believers are not only to desire peace, they are to actively seek it. Restoring broken relationship requires effort. It must be diligently pursued. It doesn't just happen. It has to be worked after. It means overcoming obstacles to peace. Jesus once said this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And that shows how much he values peacemaking and suggests how he feels about being peacebreakers. A peacemaker is somebody who's humble. They, they, they have to let go of the desire sometimes to be treated respectfully. Now, now the, the statement... All men, in verse 14, includes everyone. It includes those inside the church, but it also includes those outside the church. It includes those people you consider your friends, and you might be having a little issue that you're trying to bring it back together, but it also includes those who aren't your friends. Those you like and those who irritate you. 
It applies to your spouse when they haven't been kind to you and when they haven't treated you with respect. It applies to your teenager who might be living in rebellion against your role as a parent. It applies to a close friend, at least a person you thought was a close friend, but then you discovered they were talking about you in a negative way behind your back. It implies, uh, applies to a coworker who that dislikes you and makes your time at work miserable. Maybe the most difficult place to apply these words is in the church. You know, we expect the world to act this way, but not the church. And when Christians treat us badly, we're shocked, and we usually want to avoid them. But regardless of who's treating us badly, and that's what this verse means when it says it's for everyone, (laughs) regardless who they are, we're to pursue peace with them. John MacArthur once shared a simple example of being a peacemaker in just kind of an everyday life situation. He, He said he was driving on the freeway once and he noticed a drama kind of play out in front of him. A man was driving ahead of him and apparently he just picked up a brand new car he still had the dealer's license on it it was an expensive car another driver anxious to get past him pulled around him on the right and hit a big mud puddle when he did and and his car was just covered and a third man who was probably a friend of the first man probably the person that took him to the car lot to pick up his car uh sandwiched this other car in he got in front of this car and this other car got behind him and they forced him off the road and they proceeded to get out of their car and walk back and pour soda cup pop all over their this guy's vehicle and uh, that's not an example of peacemaking okay just just so you understand that on another occasion he says I John MacArthur's talking I cut off another driver He said he pulled up beside me at the next light and just began to curse profusely at me. He says, when he finished, I leaned out the window and said, hey, sorry, I was wrong. Forgive me, please. He says he got irritated and drove, roared off in a huff. He says, but an effort had been made for peace. Insofar as I could, I tried to make peace. And and sometimes when we bring these things down to this level of everyday life, we begin to understand how seldom we're willing to make peace, how seldom we're willing to be wronged. I mean, we can't even stand being slighted just a little bit. So instead of being peacemakers, we let bitterness fester and we choose not to forgive the person who's offended us. They don't deserve it. Well, I want to tell you a secret. I don't know if you knew this or not, but you don't deserve God's forgiveness either. And aren't you glad that he forgives? Notice in the Matthew passage, peacemakers are called the sons of God. They are the sons of God. They are the daughters of God. That means they're like God in their determination to pursue peace. They're the kind of child that makes a father proud. And so the first instruction we're given here uh, of things to avoid is we're encouraged to make every effort to live in peace with all men. Do everything that we can. Let the problem be on their side. Do everything we can to live at peace in our relationships. Secondly, we are to pursue holiness before God. 
Make every effort to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. The Christian life is not only focused on our relationships with other people. It also has a, the vertical dimensions. It's even more important than that relates to God. Holiness, we know, is not a means to salvation, but it should be a consequence of it. James Montgomery Boyce worded it real well when he said this. He says, real Christianity leads a believer to Jesus Christ. And that means the Holy Spirit comes to live in the Christian, giving the person a new nature, creating love for God and desire to obey him, and providing the ability to do what God requires. In other words, the gospel leads to internal transformation. Holiness means to be set apart for God, like the bride sets herself apart for her groom to be exclusively his, so the believer dedicates himself or herself to God alone. Francis uh, Schaeffer, in his book, True Spirituality, put it this way. He said, Holiness in the Christian life means we put ourselves in the arm of our rightful lover, our bridegroom, and bring forth his fruit into the world. He says, too often we find ourselves bringing forth the fruit of others, uh, someone other than Christ. He says, what does that mean? It means we're yielding ourselves to the wrong person. Specifically, our old master, the devil. We're bringing forth his fruit. He says, imagine a married couple of one race and one color of skin, and suddenly the wife brings forth a child clearly of another race. He says, if that happened, all the world would know that she had been unfaithful to her proper mate. He says, so it is with us. If as Christians I'm not bringing forth the fruit of Christ, there is, a spirit, there is spiritual unfaithfulness on my part. I'm guilty of spiritual adultery, for I'm not living life separated to God, and I'm not holy. When we don't... <laughs> foster that relationship with Christ, live that set-apart life for Christ, when we allow sin in our life, when we tolerate things like, like bitterness or, or unforgiveness or things like that, we are demonstrating that we are bringing forth the fruit of someone other than Christ. People whose hearts have been regenerated by God's grace will pursue a life of obedience to him. They will sin. They'll still sin, but they're not going to remain in their sin. They're not going to be comfortable in their sin. They're going to hate their sin. They're going to confess it. They're going to turn from it. They're going to build into their life safeguards to protect themselves against sin. This is going to be a lifelong pursuit for sure, but they're going to pursue it. Everyone who's been rescued from sin and judgment of, by, on the cross wants to please the Lord who died for them and pursue purity. And so as Christians, we're told to pursue both peace with men and holiness before God. We're also then warned about four threats to holiness. These hindrances are hindrances that can kind of keep us from running effectively in the race. The first is, I believe, is works righteousness. The author of Hebrews says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that can mean a couple different things. But I, I, I think Charles Swindle's right when he says not missing the grace of God means contrary to the world's mentality that embraces a rigid application of legalism, you know, the idea that you have to earn this. 
and the spiritual principle of karma, that you get what you deserve, Christians operate instead in the realm of grace. They don't operate in the realm of legalism or karma. They operate in the realm of grace. He says, when we fail to model grace, to encourage grace, to believe grace, to live with grace, to share grace with others, then we fall on our faces and backslide into worldliness. You know, why would we ever want to go back to just a legal relationship with God when we have a grace-based relationship with him? You know, the first century Christians were always doing this because they had been raised in, in Judaism. They constantly wanted to go back to trying to earn God's approval through their efforts. Religion emphasizes the rules and rituals and regulations as a way to earn God's favor. Living under the weight of, of religion is a really sad experience for us because no one ever keeps the rules good enough. It's, it, it's been compared by some to a pole vaulter trying to pole vault a height that no one has ever been able to reach. Think of Christ as the only one who's ever cleared that height. No one else has ever been able to get that high off the ground. And we miss it and we end up in the dirt humiliated over and over again as we try to earn God's approval through what we do. But Jesus says, let my jump count for you. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's the message of the gospel. But why do we keep trying to earn God's approval through how high we can jump? Well, for one thing, doing that makes our experience really frustrating because it presents, we're presented with impossible standards. We feel guilty when we, we don't reach those standards. And we're left powerless feeling like we can't do anything about that. But the reason we so often try to relate to God on the basis of our works rather than than his grace is because if we can do it a little better than somebody else, we feel superior to them. And so we find ourselves living more for the sake of appearances than out of a heart of devotion to God. And we compare ourselves with others. And if we do it a little better than the person next to us, we feel a little better and we feel a little more worthy of relating to God. Eugene Peterson wrote the the paraphrase, the message, and and listen to how he words Galatians 2, 19 through 21. He has Paul saying this. He says, I've tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I am no longer driven by trying to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be to abandon everything personal and free in my relationship with God? 
I refuse to repudiate God's grace. If I'm living a relationship with God by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. The first obstacle that trips us up is legalism. The second obstacle to running is bitterness. He says in the second part of verse 15, he says, and see to it that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. And the the author here is talking about a root of bitterness, but he's not talking about just the fruit of bitterness. He's talking about a root which is down under the surface where you don't see it, but it still provides growth to the rest of the body. And so what he's saying is he's saying there can be something going on inside you that's giving you a bitter spirit that's causing you to react in a negative way. The Life Application Bible puts it this way. He says, it says, like a small root that grows into a great tree, a, a root of bitterness comes when we allow disappointment to grow into resentment. Or when we nurse grudges over past hurts, bitterness brings with it jealousy, dissension, immorality. When the Holy Spirit fills us, however, he can heal the hurt that causes bitterness. The sad thing about bitterness is there's always a lot more going on under the surface than what is on the surface. And if we have a root of bitterness in us, we have to confess it to the Lord and we have to make sure our hearts are purified or else the devil will do his work and it will cause trouble and defile many. (laughs) In other words, it's going to affect the whole church. That sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? One nasty little attitude brings Fourth, the fruit of gossip and backbiting and slander and spreads throughout a group and destroys the chemistry of the group. That doesn't sound like running a good race. You know, I I can't help but believe if our loving Father disciplines anything, he will discipline a, a root of bitterness. And then we're warned about sexual immorality. See to it that no one's sexually immoral. And, and it's interesting to me that almost every list, when you start talking about sin in the Bible, this one resurfaces over and over again. It's like it's such a prevalent problem. We live in a world known for its immorality, and it's natural to fill your mind with sexually immoral images. And believers are often giving in to sexually immoral practices, and the author Hebrews is saying, stop it, don't go there. <laughs> That's another stumbling block that can knock you out of the race. And then finally, he warns about what he calls godlessness. In verse 16, the second part, it says, Or see to it that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And the failure of Esau, what was it? It was, it was the failure of being completely worldly in his outlook. It, that means he didn't value the things that God Uh, values as much as the things that the world has to offer him and the gratification of his appetite. Esau was a person who was shallow, shallow enough that he sold his birthright for some food because he didn't value the value of the birthright. He treated it as as if it meant nothing. Esau sacrificed long-term blessing from God for instant gratification of a fleshly desire. Calvin, in his commentary, put it like this. He says, those 
in whom the love of the world so draws them away that they forget heaven. These are, are men who are so carried away by ambition, are addicted to money and riches, are given over to gluttony and entangled with other kinds of pleasures that they give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or last place in their concerns. They're worldly. Worldly things matter more to them than than the things of God's kingdom. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And, And the terrifying thing is he couldn't reverse the consequences of his failure. Verse 17 says, Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You know, sometimes we, we grieve the consequences of our sins more than the actions, and we, tr- we don't truly acknowledge the sinfulness of our actions and repent. And the, the tragic thing is that, like Esau did in his day, so many are selling the blessings of God for a meal. Esau was earthbound. His thoughts were on what he could touch and taste and feel. Instant gratification was the rule of thumb in his life. He was, he was void of spiritual values. Like the, the author of Hebrews says, he was godless. There are things more important than our present desires, and yet for earthly treasures we often give up the things God values. The holy person, the set-apart person, on the other hand, desires what God wants more than what will please them. So in conclusion for this section, the last three messages we've had on this passage here about running the race, let let me just kind of summarize what we've talked about. And I'm I'm actually going to share Piper's summary, and then I'm going to just ask you to do some reflection on it here. Piper summarizes this part of the chapter this way. He says this, Hebrews 12.1 tells us to run the race of the Christian life, no matter how hard the course. So we're in a hard race. He says, because we're running this race, we should lay aside every encumbrance and every sin. The encumbrances, you'll remember, were the things that aren't necessarily bad. They're just the things that distract us and keep us from focusing on the bigger purpose. And the sins are the things that are wrong. Pursue peace. Pursue holiness, he says, Don't let suffering discourage you and make you fall or tempt you to leave the racetrack. He says, don't forget in all your suffering, your father is in charge and loves you and has designs for you. And and in you, the very things he's calling you to pursue, he's working all these things together for good in your life. He says, don't be like Esau who would not even lay aside a single meal but traded his soul away for some earthly treasure. So over the last three weeks, we have talked about running a race that demands a lot from us. We've been warned that there are obstacles that are going to trip us up and try to keep, cause us to fall. And so this morning then, why don't we just kind of in our hearts respond to what God's Word has been saying in this chapter of Hebrews? You know, I I invite you to just take a moment and ask God to do some inventory in your life and, and, and give you some insights into either the sins or the encumbrances or the single meals in your life that are keeping you from running and running well. 
And to help you identify them, maybe you should write one of them down on the corner of your bulletin just so you have something in front of you. And ask God to forgive you for this and renounce it and pray for God's grace to help you overcome it. And then symbolically, when you leave here this morning, leave it behind and say, in God's strength, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run this race and I'm not going to let this be an obstacle that trips me up or keeps me from running or, or preoccupies my time or causes me to trade away something more valuable for something much less valuable. You know, may God give us deep, unshakable faith in his ability to enable us to run. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we we just search our own lives right now and think about the race we're running. Help us to understand the things that are keeping us from running well. Help us out of a heart of love for you, not a, not a way of trying to earn your approval, but out of a heart of love for you to come and, and to give these areas to you and to ask you and your, your spirit to give us victory over these obstacles, these things Satan's using to try to knock us out of the race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.